So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, starting in the 46th verse of the first chapter, reading through to verse 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And may the Lord truly bless the reading of this word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive in our hearts and our souls. Heavenly Father, as we, um, as we review this beautiful, heartfelt um, a song that comes from a, a, a 13, 14-year-old peasant girl from a tiny town in rural Israel, Lord, we, we ask that we would be in awe, that we would be in awe of the way the Spirit works through the lowly, the, the way that He feeds them with knowledge, and, and the, not just the way the Spirit feeds uh, with knowledge, but the knowledge of this young girl and, and what she knows and, and how great and deep and theological uh, what she is saying is. Lord, help us just to delight in this song, but help us to also see what it tells us about the one who sings it, the one who she is singing it to, which is you, and the kingdom she's singing about. We'll give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a year ago, last November, actually seems like a lifetime to me now, that we were in Israel. And uh, we were down near Jerusalem. And on one day, we went to a little village outside of Jerusalem called Ein Karem. Some of you are familiar with that. It is traditionally the birthplace of John the Baptist. And when I say traditionally, I mean Roman Catholic tradition. There's part of me that wants to say superstition because that does not mean that at all that this is where it's actually happened. Actually, I think not. <laughs> they, they're, they're tradition is actually that this was Zechariah's summer home, that uh, he, he went here during the heat of the, of the summer, and so this is where John the Baptist was born. But nonetheless, this was where Mary is, according to their tradition, this is where she came to meet Elizabeth and to have the greeting that we talked about last week. Now, it's quite a tourist attraction now and a pilgrimage. It's up on a hill, and so you have to walk up there. And when we went, there were hundreds of other people there. So we know that thousands of people make their way to this location every year. On top, as you would expect, there is a Roman Catholic church. It's called the Church of the Visitation. And it used to be known as the Abbey of St. John in the Woods. 
And there is a beautiful mosaic there of Mary and when she arose and made haste and went to where Zechariah's house was. Of course, that's Ein Karim as far as they're concerned. And there she is on the donkey, you know, making trails with angels all around her and the big halo, of course, around her head. Um, but I am told that that particular mosaic, because of the artist who put it together, is, is considered of great artistic value. But what was most interesting to me is opposite the church, still outside, was a vast wall. And on this wall were dozens of tile inlays. And on each one of those inlays, you had the text that I just read you from the 46th through the 51st verse of Luke 1 in a multitude of different languages. I mean, every language you can imagine was on this wall. And of course, the people who were there would gravitate, very international crowd, would gravitate towards whatever their language was, and then they would read the Magnificat. But I couldn't help think, as I consider this text, especially now, but even then, As I stood there and watched the multitude of tourists and faithful kneeling before the picture of Mary and crossing themselves and praying to her, taking selfies, it was quite the tourist attraction. I couldn't help but think to myself that Mary would be mortified if she saw that. She would be devastated. She would tell them, get up off of the ground. Don't kneel to me. Don't pray to me because you've misunderstood this prayer entirely if you don't think it's all about God. It is an exaltation of God most high and has nothing to do with me. So that's the way we're going to look at this. We're going to certainly see the beauty of this song or hymn or prayer, however you want to see it. But we're, we're going to see Mary in it because there's such a window into who she is. And, and we're not going to, I told you last week, we're not going to go so far to one side because they have made Mary into a deified uh, saint, if you will, the very queen of heaven. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is a beautiful, beautiful hymn. And it is divinely inspired. And it tells us much about worship. And that's really where we're going to see. We're going to see true worship as it comes out in this beautiful hymn. Now, the immediate context of the story, if you've been here or even if you haven't been here, is what we talked about last week, that amazing meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. Mary, of course, has just been visited by the angel Gabriel and by this time has been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And with haste, she has made her way to visit her relative Elizabeth. And we talked about the haste and came to the conclusion, or at least I came to the conclusion, that it was very human. Who on earth could she talk to besides Elizabeth about what had happened in her womb? But then, of course, when Mary approached and went into the house and greeted Elizabeth. An extraordinary thing happened. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and the baby leaps in her womb. We talked about that. About Probably not him recognizing, you know, at six-month-old fetus that he was recognizing that Jesus has just entered the room as an embryo in Mary's womb. But she was filled with the Holy Spirit and the joy of heaven is just bubbling over here. And, and, and the joy that God has entered 
shared space and time. And so we saw that as the exuberance of the Holy Spirit, but we also saw it as as sort of a forerunning of the forerunning of the forerunner, if you want to put it that way. I mean, because actually that is exactly what John the Baptist is going to do. He's going to be the herald of Christ. And so in a way, that's what happened. He leaps for joy to say, the king is here and he's the king of heaven. Well, as soon as that happens, we, of course, saw Elizabeth sing her song, much shorter than Mary's. She blesses Mary as blessed among all women. Then she blesses the the fruit of her womb. Then she spoke of her own blessing, just to be privy to any of that. And finally, in more general terms, she speaks of anyone who has faith in the fulfillment of God's promises being blessed, and of course, Mary, the most immediate um, example of that. Well, anyway, as soon as Elizabeth's song is over, it appears that Mary launches into hers, and that's where we are. Now, we're only going to look at these first three verses, but let me just sort of Uh, say some things that are just sort of in general uh, about this song, things that we, um, we are going to want to see. First of all, as I said earlier, and I want to make sure that I emphasize this, first and last, start to finish, this is a song or hymn or prayer that exalts God. We're going to talk about that next week. That's going to be the focus of our attention. Not Mary, but God, because it is an exaltation. That's what she means when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul exalts him, glorifies him. So it's all about God from start to finish. And we are going to learn something about God in the way she speaks, in the words that she says. We're also going to learn something about the kingdom of God in the way that she speaks. Because after all, that is Luke's prime, a very major theme in Luke. But we're also going to learn about Mary. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that Mary is saying anything about herself because she's not. But in the way she speaks, in the words she speaks, in the form that she uses, we're going to learn something about her because it's really just sort of a window into who she is. Now, as we look at this in general, in a general sense, what I want to point out is some things about Mary because we're going to focus in on her this morning. And the first thing that I want to bring out is that this she has an exceptional, if not amazing, command of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to get real technical this morning. I could because we could go through almost every single word in this prayer and we could find references, allusions, echoes, of Old Testament scripture. It's amazing the degree to which she is reflecting the the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Now, as I said, I'm not going to get real technical about this, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least bring some of them out so you sort of had the foundation. We've already established that it's very close to Hannah's song because we read that song as part or as our responsive reading. But it's not just Hannah that she reflects, especially the Psalms and from Genesis uh, and from 1 Samuel. Let me just give you a couple of examples of that. First of all, 
When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, that echoes what David says in Psalm 34. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. When she says later on, God is my Savior, she's echoing Isaiah, who, when speaking for the Lord, says, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. When she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, well, this once again echoes Hannah, but not in her song, but in her prayer that God would give her a son. When she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. When she says, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, this echoes Leah back in Genesis when she says, happy am I for women have called me happy. So there's just this amazing use of scripture in almost every single phrase that she uses. But you know what is so amazing about that, really? Is that she didn't have a Bible. She did not have a written text. She grew up in Nazareth. There would have been one text in the whole town, and that would have been in the synagogue. And women didn't get to handle that text. In other words, when she met with the people on Saturday to worship, the men would be the ones who handled the text, and the women were delegated behind a room divider, behind a screen. They couldn't even be in the same proximity. How on earth did she learn all this scripture if she didn't have a Bible to study over and over again? What it means, brothers and sisters is that while many of you are daydreaming while the sermon goes on, she was listening. She was not only listening, she was tucking that away in her heart. She was meditating on it. She would take it home with her to the point that when she sang her own song, this just flowed out of her. Now, maybe her parents taught her quite a bit, and I would expect that they would. Maybe there was a teacher in town who taught girls. But the fact that she has such a command of Scripture for a young girl growing up in rural Israel is amazing. So I just want you to keep it in that perspective as we go all the way through. And by the way, she also had a powerful, a remarkable understanding of theology. She just didn't memorize the Scripture. She meditated on it. And so, therefore, she understands so much about God that we're going to look at next week. She understood so much about the kingdom of God that we may end up talking about next week. She understood the covenantal faithfulness of God, and she brought that into what she said. So this is truly an amazing song from a girl who you just simply would not expect any of this to be there. Um, Now, one more thing I want to kind of just give you the overview. Let's kind of zoom in on just those first two opening verses, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, where Mary starts it out by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, there are those who look at that and say, aha, well, there's the trichotomous view of man, that we're made of three different parts, body, soul, and spirit. I'm not going to go into that too much here in the service. We will indeed talk about it in the after church because an early church heresy emanated from that misunderstanding of the makeup of human beings. It's a dichotomous view. 
And certainly that is what, meaning too, we are made up of body and soul. Uh, but here, Mary is using something that is known as Hebrew parallelism. And we run across this quite a bit in Scripture, that when they want to make something, they really want to emphasize it, well, they will repeat it twice, but they will word it slightly differently. Now, those of you who were here in the study of John, you ought to know this, because John was the master of Hebrew parallelism. How many times did you hear me say, well, John loves to repeat himself, but every time he repeats himself, the richness is in the nuance of difference between the repetition. Well, that's what Mary is doing here. She is using soul and spirit as synonyms, and she's making the same statement, the same idea, um, idea, even though she is using different words to express it. So uh, that'll help us understand what she is saying and the way that she is saying it. So let's jump in now that we've got our our overview uh, out of the way. Let's jump into the text itself because what Mary says here teaches us so much about true worship. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. That word magnifies in the Latin is magnificat, and that's where the song gets its name. Um, it kind of stuck, even though we, you know, we're talking in English, we still use that Latin term for magnifies. But I think the really interesting word is not the Latin word, but the Greek word that is underneath it. It is megaluno. And perhaps you recognize the first part of that word, mega, megas. And we've talked about that several times already in Luke's first chapter, the narrative of the nativity. Because that was the word that the angel Gabriel used when he said to Zechariah, your son will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And then later on, when the same angel said to Mary that your son will be great... He left it unqualified. He didn't say great at what. He just said great. In other words, he used it in an unquantifiable way. Great in the, in the sense of total, complete majesty and greatness. That was the degree of the greatness of Christ. Well, now Mary uses the same word, but she uses it in the context of praise. Let me give you what the word means directly from a Greek dictionary. This is what it, how it describes it. It means to cause to be held in greater esteem through praise or deeds. To exalt, to glorify, to magnify, to speak highly of. Okay, so this is what magnifies means. So Mary is saying, my soul magnifies, exalts, holds up, lifts up, puts on high the name of God. Now, brothers and sisters, one of the most important things about this morning's message is the way she says that. Notice she didn't say, my lips magnify the Lord, or my words magnify the Lord, or my mouth magnifies the Lord. She didn't say that. She said, my soul 
magnifies the Lord. The essence of my being, the core fiber of who I am, that which will live forever, either in glory with Christ or in condemnation with Satan. But my soul cries out, lifts up, extols the existence of God. And so it comes, the the direction is all important. The direction is all important. You cannot use that word in an external sense. You cannot glorify or exalt or hold up the Lord, magnify Him as Mary is doing if it is entirely external. It has to be something that comes from a soul that loves God, that loves Him completely and totally. So what we have here, brothers and sisters, is a window. And when I told you that this song is going to teach us a lot about Mary. It's not that she's saying, hey, look at me. It's that just the way she speaks is a window into her soul because this child who is in her womb that will later on become the greatest ethical teacher that the world has ever known, he's going to teach that it's not so much what you do on the outside that matters. It's what's on the inside. It's what's in your soul. Later on in Luke, he will put it this way. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. In other words, when Mary says, my soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord. She is saying that my soul is so full of joy. It is so full of of love for God that I cannot hold it inside. So my exaltation, my worship comes from the depth of the fiber of who I am. Brothers and sisters, that's the only worship that is true worship. All other worship that is external we're going to talk about it a little bit later on. The Bible has the harshest words to say about an external worship that has to be something that comes from a heart that is in love with God. Jesus would say that when he sits at the well with that Samaritan woman. We'll talk about it later. But he says, God is spirit. And if you're going to worship him, you're going to worship him in spirit and truth. Well, that's what Mary says next, rewording herself just a wee bit when she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In other words, the same joy that caused that baby, that fetus, to leap in his mother's womb, that same Holy Spirit-driven joy was a joy that lived in the heart of Mary that could not be contained. My spirit, my soul, my essence just rejoices in God, my Savior. An awful lot of discussion has been made about that last phrase that she says there when she says, um, God, my Savior. Now, to us, Christians, New Testament Christians, after 2,000 years of church history, we don't really have a problem with that, do we? Well, of course she's talking about God, my Savior. She's talking about the child in her womb. She's talking about Jesus because not only will he be her, her child in the flesh, but she'll also be her Savior because he is both God and man. So we're perfectly good with that. But then Old Testament scholars are going to call out, they're going to say, wait a minute. You're projecting New Testament ideas on an Old Testament saint. 
Because everything that Mary knows about Scripture, she has pulled from the Old Testament. So it doesn't necessarily mean that she's talking about Jesus, and it doesn't necessarily mean that she's talking about God as the Savior from our sins. And there's some pretty big names that would bring that to your attention, R.C. Sproul being one of them. And so it's true. I mean, you you have to realize that when the Old Testament talks about God as Savior, it's not necessarily talking about it in a New Testament context because God saves his people from all kinds of things, from enemies, from pestilence, from famine, and from slavery. Just as we read in Psalm 106, the psalmist says, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. There it's clear that... God is their savior, but he's the savior because he led them out of the land of Egypt. And so they have a very valid point, one that we must consider if we're going to understand what Mary is saying. But the question that I would ask them is, okay, if if Mary's not talking about salvation of her sins through Jesus who is in her womb, then what is she talking about? Salvation from what? Why is God her savior? And this is where I part ways with them. Because they'll say, well, it it must be that she is so exuberant because God has given her this privilege that she's being saved from a life of obscurity. A life of of absolute, uh, uh, nobody knows who she is. She's nothing more than a drop of water in the ocean of humanity. Totally and completely obscure. A humdrum life as the wife of the local carpenter. You see, this is where I draw exception with them. Because, first of all, you're making a huge assumption there. You're assuming that Mary would not want the life of a humdrum wife of the local carpenter. That she wouldn't, in her humility, gravitate towards a life of obscurity rather than a life of notoriety. That perhaps she didn't want to be in center stage. Perhaps all she really wanted out of life was children, a husband, and a family, and to worship and love her God, and that was enough for her. Well, feminism has told us that that's an abomination. You cannot think that way. Well, why would we think Mary wouldn't think that way? I think I know my wife pretty well. I've known her since I was 16 years old. And since we were 16 years old, she's been telling me that what she really wants out of life is to be a wife and a mother and to love God. And I believe her. So why would I assume that she's oppressed because she is not being thrust into the world stage? So I think that there's the premise is completely wrong. That they think that, that God would save her from obscurity. So I, I just can't see that. And, and I think it runs against the tenor of the entire story. And there's a reason that I'm sort of emphasizing this point. So that's what I believe that is not being said. So I I, I take a more traditional view. I take the view that she is indeed talking about Christ as Savior, God as Savior, Savior from her sins. But once again, I do respect those who say we have to take this in an Old Testament context. So let's take it in an Old Testament context because you're going to find that use of Savior all through the Old Testament. For instance, when David writes that 
soulful song after Uriah and Bathsheba and being caught by Nathan. He says this, talking to God, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. There God is the Savior from the horrible sin that David has committed. He's praying for God's mercy. Psalm 119 says something very similar. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your words. So there's no doubt that the Old Testament uses God my Savior in the sense of God my Savior. But you say, okay, maybe that's about God. But what about the child in her womb? How how would she be thinking that he is the Savior? I know you didn't ask me this, but my response to you would be, really? 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 You need something in the Old Testament to explain to you that the Messiah is indeed the Savior, the one who is going to atone for our sins. Did you never read or pay attention to Isaiah 53? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I doubt seriously that Mary was not aware of this with her command of Scripture, and she was truly part of the Messianic community, and she knows that the child in her womb is great. He shall be the Son of God Most High. He will be the leader of his people, Jacob. He will take the throne of David forever and ever. I doubt seriously that she does not know that this is God, my Savior, talking about Jesus the Christ. Now, the reason I made such a big deal about that, because it is going to help us explain the next verse, verse 48. Because uh, a lot has been made out of the second sentence of verse 48, and I want to keep it into its perspective. Because Mary is not saying that my God saves me from obscurity. He saves me from a humdrum life. He saves me from a life of non-humility when everything she says tells us that she wants to be humble. And that is what the next verse tells us if we read it correctly. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Let's just take that first sentence and let's go to the end of the sentence first. And that word servant. Now we talked about this last week. And I said then, and I'll say it again, I'm disappointed that the ESV translates this word as servant. Because in our modern understanding of that word, it is someone who can pick up and move around as they want. But the word is actually doule in the Greek, which is the feminine form of the more familiar doulos, which is the masculine word that means slave. No other way to look at it, it means slave. However, when it is used in a certain context, in the New Testament context, it speaks of a slave who is a slave voluntarily, not someone who is oppressed, not someone who has no self-determination at all. They have been given that self-determination and they have expressed under their own volition, I want to be a slave to the master who is Lord over me. That is what a bond servant is, and the New American Standard translates the word bondservant, I wish the ESV had, because it speaks of someone who is a slave by choice. 
Again, we've already seen this. Going back to the 38th verse, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant, the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be according to your words. Humble, obedient, a bondservant to God. And now, so now that's the context that she speaks in now. And she says in this sense, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his bond slave. He has looked upon my estate. This is a statement of absolute humility. She is saying here, folks, I am nothing. I'm no one, and I come from nowhere. What on earth is God doing bestowing this great blessing upon me? I have done absolutely nothing whatsoever to deserve it. And so, therefore, it is a statement of absolute and complete humility. Humility when she says this. And that's important because we're going to go to the next verse, and the next verse can be misinterpreted if we don't keep the context in mind. Because she says, For behold, from now on, all generations, that's a cycle of life, that is forever, all the people who are going to live are going to call me blessed. Now, like I said, if, if Mary is saying, oh, wow, you know, God has blessed me because now I'm not going to live a humdrum life, then you could easily misinterpret that. So let me tell you what she's not saying, at least according to me. Um, she's not saying, hey, I am so blessed that all people are going to, from this day forward, call me blessed Because God has given me this child. Because I am the mother of the Christ. I am blessed and people will reverence me and exalt me and pray to me and cross themselves before me from now until the end of time. That's not at all what it means. I mean, not only is she not saying I'm the queen of heaven or I'm co-mediatrix with Christ. What she is saying is, I'm not the Pharisee that Jesus, my son, who later grows up, is going to tell a story about. He tells a story about two men who go up to the temple, right? And one is a Pharisee, and he stands there and says, look at me. I am so righteous. I am so good. God has blessed me in so many ways. Look at all my external worship. And over in the corner, there is a man pounding his chest saying, God, forgive me, a sinner, Mary's that publican, folks. She's not the Pharisee. And so therefore, she is not saying, I am going to be blessed because of what God is going to do to me. She is saying, I am blessed to even be in this ballpark. I am blessed because the child who is in my womb is a blessing and he will be a blessing to all mankind. Do you remember what we said about John the Baptist when we talked about him, when Jesus said that he will be great, he'd be the greatest man born of woman? You know, when Jesus would say that later about John the Baptist? Well, we discussed why John the Baptist was so great. I mean, why is he greater than Moses or greater than Abraham or greater than Elijah? It's not because there was anything inherently great in John the Baptist. It is because of his proximity to Christ. Because of the task that he was given. Because he's the forerunner. The herald of the Christ. And that is what makes him great. Same thing with Mary. The reason she is blessed, folks, is not because there's anything inherent in Mary that is blessed. She's not the queen of heaven. 
She's, she, she is simply not any of the things that people say she is. She is a humble peasant girl that God has placed in the most extraordinary position. And because of the one who is in her womb, she is blessed. Because the one in her, her womb is the very one that God spoke about in Genesis 3.15 when he told Adam and Eve and he told the snake, there will come a time that the seed of the woman will crush the head of evil. And that child now develops in Mary's womb. He's the very child that God said to Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed through you. Well, that child is in Mary's womb. That's the reason she's going to be blessed. She's blessed because of her closeness to Christ in the flesh. Because of the task that God has given her. So I want you to see that. I want you to see the degree to which Mary is humbly and obediently worshiping God from the very fiber of her existence, not bringing any attention to to herself, but placing all attention on God. Now, as I said, that's where we're going to leave it for today. I'm going to step back for a little bit because there's some things that uh, I want to bring out about just this one point. Um, as I said, I split this up. I originally have four points. <laughs> four points? We're only going to talk about one of them today. All right? And that's the nature of worship because this is indeed a song of worship. It is a hymn of worship that Mary is singing. And because this is divinely inspired scripture, we know that this is a lesson, a model, an example for us of what true Worship truly is. And the only point I'm going to make this morning is that true worship is internal. That's the source of true worship. It cannot come from an external means. It cannot. Because if it does, it is not true worship. Once again, you know the story. You know Jesus as he sat beside the well in Samaria and that woman came who he knew was a prostitute. He knew that she was a woman of very, very low morals. But she contended with him, even in that, that context, about what true worship is. Remember? Oh, you say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We worship here. When, where's it supposed to be? And that's when Jesus says, no, no. There's new wine, and those old wineskins are just simply not going to hold it. We're not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Not can worship him, not should worship him, not might worship him, but must worship him in spirit and truth. Exactly what Mary is doing here. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's true worship because it comes from a place on the inside of her. It is an internally sourced worship. And Jesus was making a really strong point that it's not what matters on the outside, but it matters on the inside. And true worship, like you saw this morning, like you are doing here, if you have Christ in your heart, true worship emanates from a born-again heart, a redeemed heart, a transfigured heart, regenerated heart. That's where worship emanates from. And if, if there is worship on the mouth, Of someone, this is where we start getting harsh. 
Because if there's worship, if there are words of worship, if there is the extolling and the exalting and the glorifying and the magnifying of God that is from an external source, Jesus has a word for it. And he says it in Matthew 15 as he talks to a group of Pharisees and scribes who have come to up from Jerusalem to Galilee. And they're all upset at Jesus' disciples because they didn't ceremonially wash their hands before they ate. And they questioned Jesus upon it. And he says to them, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who has something on the inside and says something different. She talks about being so exalted, an external source of their own piety, when inside they have souls that are full of dead men's bones. Hypocrite comes from the word used in Greek plays. You've seen those two masks that usually re- reference the, the theater. You have one mask with a big smile on it. That means comedy. You have another mask with a big frown on it. That means tragedy. And in the old days when they were doing Greek plays, the actors would just hold one mask up or the other to kind of help the audience know whether this was a tragedy or whether this was a comedy in the way that they said it. But it had showed nothing of what was truly in the heart of those actors. They may be dying inside, but they're going to put on that mask of comedy. That's what Jesus says. You are hypocrites because the worship that is in your mouth, the worship that is on the outside doesn't come from the only place that true worship can come from, which is a heart, a soul, a spirit that is in love with God. He goes on to say in that passage, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me. Totally futile, of no value whatsoever. I do not accept that worship. That is not true worship in my eyes. In vain Do they worship me? Because they are worshiping me from an external source. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, it's far more serious than that. It's not just that it's futile. It's not just that it's vain. It is an abomination to God. Probably this is not put in any more poignant language than it is in the fifth chapter of Amos. Amos, a prophet of the Lord, says this, speaking for God, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, animals, I will not look upon them. Then he says, take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps I will not listen brothers and sisters if there was ever a verse that this church today not this church but the modern church especially in the west needs to hear it is that one take away your songs the noise that you make on Sunday morning take away all of the external Ways of worship. You see, brothers and sisters, the church has fallen into something that is so dangerous. So dangerous. Not just to the churches, but to the hearts of unbelievers. 
Because what they have done is they have focused on the creation of an environment, a worshipful environment through music, through sound shows, I mean light shows, through pyrotechnics, through dramas on the stage. They have created a worshipful environment so that a pagan can walk in and feel that they are worshiping God. But God says, I hate that. I despise that. And your songs to me are nothing more than noise. That's the bane of the modern church, but you know, it's not new, is it? There's nothing new under the sun. Apostate churches have been doing that since the Middle Ages and actually before. Building cathedrals that were designed to be worshipped in. Having liturgies that that created a sense of reverence and awe in the peasants who would come there. Now, I'm not saying, now please, let me repeat what I said earlier. I am not saying there's anything wrong with lofty architecture to move our eyes heavenward. Nothing wrong with that with all. Nothing wrong with stained glass windows. Nothing wrong with the kind of music that we experienced this morning, which is from the soul. And it's obvious it's from the soul. But when you create that environment artificially and call it worship, it is an abomination to God. Several years ago, Kay and I were in Paris. And we walked into the Cathedral Notre Dame. That name ought to tell you everything. It's a cathedral to Mary. But we walked into that cathedral. Now, Kay's a Christian and I'm not. But we walked into that cathedral and we looked at the architecture and our hearts both soared. It was the afternoon and the afternoon light was coming through those beautiful stained glass windows and, and, and filtering across that, that sanctuary. And it was such a worshipful sight. And there on the other end, there was a boy's choir singing the most gorgeous songs. And literally, if I had been different, I'd have dropped to my knees because I was so worshipful. What an example. Kay worshiped from her soul because she knew Christ. Me, total external. Total thought that I was worshiping and I had a spiritual sense and I left feeling like I had some kind of spiritual experience and that is so dangerous because I didn't know the Lord. I was lost and they made me feel like I wasn't. This inclusivism that we do in the church is dangerous. Because we don't want pagans who don't know Christ to feel like they do. We want them to search for him with their whole heart, to recognize their sinfulness, to fall down before him so that their hearts can be transformed by the Spirit of God. Anything short is not true worship. Now, once again, I am not talking about music that comes from the heart. But Lord, if we manufacture faults, False reverence, false worshipfulness, false environment, an electrically and emotionally charged environment, then what we are doing is responding to our emotional state and not the Holy Spirit. And people who are not saved don't know the difference. And we are, we are doing something horrible to them to make them feel that they do when they don't. Eternity and damnation hangs in the balance. So I want to leave you this morning with a question. 
question for you who are here watching online. Does your soul magnify the Lord? Does your spirit rejoice in God your Savior? Suppose that you were to come to this place next week. The doors were locked. And you looked inside and the organ's gone, the piano's gone, the guitar's gone, the audio system is gone. Nothing in here, completely blank. And rather than worshiping in here with this lofty, beautiful sanctuary that God has gifted us with, we're outside under a tree. No Bibles. You don't have one on your phone. You don't have one anywhere. You have no access to a Bible whatsoever. No Bibles, no hymnals, nothing but the Psalms to recite like the Puritans used to do. And there's only one person out there who has a Bible, and that's me. And I faithfully try to bring the Word of God to you to explain it as it was explained to Mary. What would you do? Would you rejoice in God your Savior? Would your soul magnify the Lord no matter what the external trappings of that worship was? Or would you leave and go to a church where they had those external trappings. How serious are you about worshiping God, your Savior? You think about that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the standards that you teach us in Scripture are indeed high and lofty. They are so far above us, but they do bring out the mirror so that we look at ourselves. Lord, give in us a pure heart. Give us that desire to worship you from our souls, no matter where we are, no matter what time of day it is, no matter whether we're here in the sanctuary, whether we're home, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day it is, help us to worship you purely with a crystalline heart, a soul that magnifies you both in our actions and in our deeds. We will give you the glory in Christ's name.